Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to be looking at verses 20, start looking at verses 21 to 29, important part of the chapter. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house. And yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and slammed against that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Well, by now you know that all through the Sermon on the Mount, covering chapters 5 through 7, Jesus has been setting forth the divine standards of his kingdom. As the anointed Messiah, the Christ, the King, he has certain principles that he has demanded of those who desire to enter his kingdom. And those principles occupy the rest of this sermon, but they can all be summed up by one word. The requirement for entering the kingdom is that you be righteous. So therefore, the whole sermon is summed up in chapter, in verse 20 of chapter 5, where it says, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is God's dominion. God's worlds, to which we gain entrance by salvation through Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. And entrance into that kingdom is dependent upon righteousness. Now, how righteous do we have to be? Well, we're to be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. How righteous were they? Well, they were as righteous as a man can get on his own terms. Uh, they had come to the epitome of human achievement in religion. They were obsessed with religious function. As far as the people around them knew, they were exceedingly righteous. They seemed to do all the right things, like praying and giving alms and fasting. They seemed to have all the right standards, like not murdering, not committing adultery, make sure, making sure they maintained every minute element of the law. From a human perspective, it seemed as though they were exceedingly righteous. And yet that righteousness that Christ demands far exceeds theirs. In fact, Jesus is requiring a righteousness that is beyond man, man's capacity. A divine righteousness that comes from God. A standard that man himself is utterly unable to attain. In fact, if you want to know how righteous you have to be, all you have to do is read chapter 5, verse 48. And there we read, therefore you are to be, what? Perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. We are to be as righteous and perfect as God is. Now when you hear that message, you're immediately faced with the fact that you can't live up to that standard. You cannot be more righteous than the Pharisees, who were the most righteous people who ever lived, because they were as righteous as people can be on their own. You could conceivably match their righteousness, but you can't be any more righteous than that. And you cannot be as perfect as God is perfect because you're a human being. And so all through this sermon, Jesus was showing them the inadequacy of their own human resources to enter God's kingdom. They can't make it. Therefore, the whole idea of the sermon is to bring them to the very point at which our Lord started. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 
In other words, the Lord said at the very beginning that the people who enter his kingdom are those who know their own righteousness won't cut it. That the standard of perfection is far beyond their capability, and so they are beggars in spirit. They can't earn it. They have to beg for it. They mourn because of the total sinfulness that they see within themselves. They're meek and humble because they know they, they fall short of the standard of God and they hunger and thirst for a righteousness they know they can't attain. So the purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is identical to the purpose of the Old Testament Mosaic Law. When God gave the law on Mount Sinai, it was not given in order to show man how good he had to be. The law was given to show man how bad he was, how far short of God's standards he fell, how good he could not be. And Paul summed it up when he wrote in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In Galatians 3.24, Paul also said that the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So the law was what revealed our sinfulness in order to drive us to Jesus Christ. And essentially, that's what Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. He's upholding the law of God. In fact, he says back in the early part of the sermon in chapter 5, verses 17 and 18, Do not think I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, and not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is reiterating the law of God and saying the standard hasn't changed. And you must come to see how short you are. And therefore you must be a beggar in spirit and come to him as a mourner, meek and humble before God, hungering and thirsting for his righteousness. Now that leaves mankind with only two options. You either invent your own religion or you come on God's terms. You either come on your terms or his terms. And that's precisely what, where we saw that the sermon climaxes in chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says you have to make a choice. You can enter through the narrow gate and take a hard, narrow, tightly constricted path to eternal life. Or you can come through a wide gate and take the smooth, easy, broad highway to eternal destruction. Jesus says there are only those two ways. The broad gate and the broad way is the way of human righteousness, of man-made religion. It's the way of those who think they're good enough to make it on their own. On the other hand, the narrow gate and the narrow way is the way of divine righteousness. And those who come that way do so with a broken heart and a contrite spirit, knowing they can't make it on their own. They can't live up to his righteousness. They can't be as perfect as God is, and they cast themselves on the mercy of, of Jesus Christ who imputes to him, to them, his righteousness. Those are the only two ways, and that is the climax of the sermon. But an important point here is that Jesus points out the difficulty of entering in the narrow gate right in verse 14. He says there that there are few who find it. That implies searching for, looking for, examining for, putting forth effort. And one of the reasons it's so hard to find this narrow path is because there's false prophets who are standing at the crossroads trying to divert you onto the broad path and blocking you from seeing the narrow path. They're Satan's children. They're trying to divert everyone through the wide gate with all of their sin and self-centeredness, telling them that God wants them to be healthy, happy, and wealthy. And so many go down that broad highway to hell because of the deceitfulness of the false prophets. And now Jesus gives another reason why people take the broad path to destruction, and that is self-deception. Self-deception. In his commentary, on Matthew, J.C. Ryle wrote these words, The Lord Jesus winds up the Sermon on the Mount by a passage of heart-piercing application. He turns from false prophets to false professors, from unsound teachers to unsound hearers. End quote. And the great Bible, British Bible scholar R.V.G. Tasker adds this, 
It is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find. It is that a man may also be grievously self-deceived that adds to the difficulty, end quote. In other words, it's not just the false prophets who deceive us, but we can deceive our own selves into believing we're Christians when the fact is we're not. Now that's precisely the issue that Jesus takes up in verses 21 to 27, self-deception. Having stated all the principles, having warned about the false prophets, the Lord says, now in closing, let me warn you about one other thing. Make sure you're not fooling yourself. Are you really a true member of the kingdom of heaven or are you self-deceived? And Jesus warns us about two categories of self-deception. The first is mere verbal profession and the second is mere intellectual knowledge. The first is described in verses 21 to 23 and involves those who say but do not do. And the second, described in verses 24 to 27, involves those who hear but do not do. Uh, those two categories deal with the matter of self-deception, mere verbal profession and a mere intellectual knowledge. They are, as John Stott puts it, a camouflage for disobedience. Now keep in mind that Jesus is not speaking to or about irreligious people. He's not speaking to atheists or agnostics, agnostics, nor is he speaking to pagans, heretics, or apostates. He is speaking specifically to people who are devotedly religious. They are utterly religious people, but they are self-deluded, thinking they are on the road to heaven when they're really on the broad road to hell. Now, maybe their self-delusion is a result of sitting under a false prophet, or maybe they have actually sat under the truth but have deluded themselves. They're not unlike the people that Paul speaks about in 2 Timothy 3.5, who hold to a form of godliness but have denied its power. And I am convinced that the church, by that I, I mean the universal church, not Lakeside specifically, is jammed full of people. <clears throat> who think they are Christians, but they are not. Uh, when both the Gallup pollsters and the Barna pollsters say that according to their polls, approximately 40% of the people in the United States identify as evangelicals, that just doesn't square up with Scripture. <laughs> that would mean that about 100 million American adults are evangelicals. Because George Barna knew that couldn't possibly be right, he went back and added some more questions to the survey that were specifically designed to narrow down whether or not they were truly evangelical. And those beliefs had to do with specific theological beliefs that are specific to the biblical definition of a true believer. And after doing that, Barna found that only 6 to 8% of the population are identified by their beliefs as evangelicals that would be about 20 to 26 million adults here in the United States. But even then, Barna admits that the number is still too high because their questions don't account for everything that a true evangelical believes. And their definition of an evangelical, an evangelical includes a lot of people who were caught up in the Word of Faith groups and some other sketchy groups. So perhaps 4 to 5% of the adults in the United States might be true believers. That's a far cry from the 100 million who claim to be born again. They are self-deluded. And there are a lot of people, well, I shouldn't say a lot, there are some people who come and sit on the pews, the chairs, at Lakeside Community Chapel every Sunday who think they are believers, but they are not. I don't think we have as many of them as some other churches in our area, but we have far more than you might realize. Many of them just come and sit and make no attempt to join the church or to participate in any ministry or to do anything that might expose their hypocrisy. So we have multitudes of deceived people who are in the universal church, who are on the Jesus bandwagon, 
who think everything is set between them and God. And Jesus says that for them, <clears throat> the final judgment is going to be one big surprise. Frankly, there's no better way to expose them to the truth about their condition than by this particular sermon by our Lord. Now, some of these people that are self-deceived are false prophets, uh, but some of them are not. They, they know they're phony, uh, but I think some of them are self-deceived, so they're in this group. But I think the term everyone that Jesus uses in verses 21 and following and the word many that he uses in verse 22, <coughs> those do not refer to the false prophets, but also to all of those who are self-deluded and deceived about whether they're really redeemed. The Bible is filled with warnings to people who are deceived. But let me just give you just one other illustration. It's found over in Matthew 25. Turn over there with me. It's very similar to this, so I think you'll get the picture. Beginning in verse 1, Matthew 25, Jesus says, Then the kingdom of heaven will be comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now these virgins are symbolic of people who are attached to Christianity. And the bridegroom is emblematic of Christ. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish and five were prudent. In other words, they're like the people who built their house on the rock and the sand back in our text in seven, chapter 7. Verse 3. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. In other words, they had a form of godliness. They didn't have the power. They didn't have what they needed. They didn't have salvation. They just had churchianity. Then starting in verse 4, it says, but the prudent took oil and flask along with their lamps. Now, while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. But at midnight there was a shout, Behold the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the prudent answered, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now go back to Matthew 7. These two passages are saying the same thing, aren't they? There's going to come a day when people are going to expect the door to be open, it's going to be slammed shut forever in their faces. I do not know you. What a fearful thing. So many people think they're saved. They think they're safe. They think that they got their ticket to heaven punched. And so judgment for them is going to be a shock. What lulls people into that deception? What makes people think they're saved? Well, let me give you several suggestions. I have a long introduction to this passage. You probably noticed that we haven't even started on it yet. <laughs> well, first, many times it's because they have a false doctrine of assurance. In other words, let's assume that when you were led to Christ, by uh, someone said to you, well, now all you have to do to be a Christian is repeat after me and pray this little prayer. And so you prayed it, and then the guy or gal said, well, now you're saved. Don't let anyone ever tell you any different. If you start doubting, that's from Satan. So just remember what you did here. This is your guarantee that you have been saved. And perhaps they even had you write something down on a card uh, or in the front of your Bible with a date and time. That sort of thing happens quite often, particularly with young people at some kind of big youth event. And what happens is that the person gets a false sense of assurance. Listen, when you lead a person to Christ, you should never say, now, since you prayed that prayer, you're saved, and don't you ever doubt it, and don't you ever let anybody else cause you to doubt it, because that, now that you've prayed, you're saved. Don't ever tell anybody that. When I was a teenager, I heard statements like that at church youth rallies where our 
youth group would get together with the youth groups from three or four other churches and or even a summer camp, a speaker might some, say something like, well, if you ever doubt whether or not you're a Christian, you're denying something that belongs to God. You're denying the permanence of his salvation. You're questioning God's integrity. You are, in a sense, casting upon God what he has said isn't true. Don't ever do that. Just accept it as truth and refuse to doubt it. Folks, that's a lot of baloney. Listen, if you feel in your heart that you want to invite Jesus Christ to become the Lord and Savior of your life and you've done it before, do it again. Don't let someone else's false assurance, someone else's false certification take the place of the convicting work of the Spirit of God. That business of don't ever doubt or worry about whether you're saved is nothing more than a little psychological game that can become a problem because if they are truly repentant and truly seeking after Jesus with their whole heart, uh, if they were, then the Holy Spirit took care of it. But if they weren't, they were never regenerated from the beginning. Never say to someone, well, now I know you're saved and don't you ever doubt it. It's all settled in heaven. You don't need to worry about it anymore. If you do that, you're giving them a psychological assurance of something that you don't even know for certain is true. Only God knows their heart. So don't go around certifying people's salvation because if you do, you give them a false assurance. Let God give them assurance through his spirit, witnessing with their spirits that they're the children of God. Let me show you how God gives them assurance. Look over at 2 Peter 1. Here Peter lays out the process. 2 Peter 1, beginning in verse 3. We read, Seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence knowledge, in your knowledge self-control, in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. Now listen, here's verse 8. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, the presence of those things in your life is how you know that you truly know Christ. Verse 9, For he who lacks these qualities is blind and short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That is, if those things aren't in your life, you can have no assurance. And then this in verses 10 and 11. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. He's saying the way to be certain of your salvation is by checking to see those fruits growing in your life. And then you'll know with certainty that you're going to heaven. You see, that's God's certification work not some kind of certification by some other human being. But I think a lot of people have been told they're saved, and so they believe it. A second reason I think lulls people into self-deception is this failure to do a self-examination. They never really examine themselves, as Peter said there we ought to do there at the end of that passage. Many people have been taught a view of God's grace that simply excuses everything. Uh, to them, everything is grace and forgiveness, so they never really bother to face their sin. They hear someone say, oh, you don't have to confess your sin because it's already been forgiven. It's all taken care of. Everything is set aside, so don't worry about that. Just go on and live your life. It, it almost borders on what is known as antinomianism, which means against the law. Uh, they have an attitude that goes against the law of God. They say, we're no longer under the law, so we can do whatever we want to do. 
And so they go through life oblivious to and unconcerned about their sins. They engage in all kinds of sinful behavior and never bother to examine their lives to see if they're truly believers. But in 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says that when we come to the Lord's table, the time of communion, each of us is to examine ourselves in regard to sin in our lives. And in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, we're told to test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Why? Because we're in danger of self-deception. You, you need to look at your sin and examine your motives. Ask yourself, why did I do that seemingly righteous act that others noticed and admired? Was it to gain glory for myself or for God? Even the weakest Christian has pure longings in his heart for righteousness, even though his flesh hinders their fulfillment. If you find that everything you do is for your own glory, and God's glory isn't even a part of the equation, then you have a problem. If you're truly saved, God will conform that to you by his spirit witnessing with your spirit. But if that confirmation isn't there, don't go away under the illusion that you're okay because you once prayed a prayer and someone told you that you were saved. In 1 John 1, 8 and 9, John tells us if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, if we are continually confessing our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The person who's not concerned about having his present sins cleansed has good reason to doubt that his past sins have been forgiven. The one who has no desire to come to the Lord for continued cleansing has reason to doubt that he ever came to the Lord to receive salvation. Let me just say this as plainly as I can. When a couple lives together without being married, with knowledge of what God has to say about sexual immorality outside of marriage, and an attitude of we, really, we don't think it really matters because God will forgive us, or when a person practices homosexuality as an ongoing lifestyle, or when someone has a continual pattern of being deceptive and dishonest in business, or someone is hateful and vengeful and harms others in order to gain an advantage, or someone habitually practices any sin without remorse or repentance, such people cannot be Christians, no matter what sort of experience they claim to have had or what sort of testimony they now make. God's word is explicit. You say, Bruce, where do you base that? 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. All the examples I gave you are right here. Listen to it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And Ephesians 5, 5 and 6 reiterates that. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Did you notice that in both of those passages Paul said we're not to be deceived? Why? Because it's easy to say that God's grace is so great that he will forgive all our sins and therefore it's not necessary to be concerned about our sin and thus to deceive ourselves. A third cause for people to be under the delusion that they're saved is a fixation on religious activity. In other words, they go to church, they hear sermons, they sing songs, they read the Bible, they go to a Bible study, or they participate in various church activities and ministries. And because they're wrapped up in all kinds of religious activity, they think they're saved. That's a very great illusion or delusion. I think that's particularly true among, among many of our young people who've grown up in Christian families and attended church their entire lives. You see, 
Many of them are seemingly good kids, an active part of the church youth group, and yet they go off to college, and the next thing you hear, they've turned their back on Christ and walked away from anything to do with Christianity. Perhaps they're even, they've even become an atheist or an agnostic. That happened with two of my relatives, a niece and a nephew. And their mother couldn't understand how such a thing could happen in their lives because they had made professions of faith and had been such an active part of their church youth groups. But that's because their church's pastor and youth pastor never confronted them about the reality of following what following the, the reality of following Christ truly means. They were told that you simply pray a prayer and so long as you do live a certain way and don't do certain things and do all the fun Christian things that the youth group does, you're a Christian. And their claim to faith was never questioned or challenged. And there was never any call for deep self-examination. I fear there are many in the church just like them. They are wrapped up in church activity, but they're nothing more than tares among the wheat. And then there's a fourth area that lulls people in deception, and that's what you might call the fair exchange approach. That's when you see something wrong in your life, but instead of truly dealing with it and examining whether or not you're really a genuine Christian, instead you find something right in your life and you make a fair exchange. You say, see, I'm not that bad because look at what I did over there. And so you're always trading off the negatives and the positives instead of really evaluating your life honestly with integrity and saying, am I truly a believer? And if I am, should I be doing this? So you can be lulled into deception by false assurance, by a failure to examine yourself, by a fixation on religious activity, or by a fair exchange approach. But in all those cases, you're deceived. It's amazing to me how many people are deceived. I can't believe how many times I've heard people in the homosexual movement say, well, who are you to say I'm not a Christian? We go to church, we love Jesus, and we're concerned about the poor. But the female pastor at their church they attend affirms their lifestyle and proclaims a Jesus who is unlike the Jesus of the Bible and assures them that their good works will earn them God's approval, and so they are both self-deceived and deceived by a false prophet. Folks, the bottom line is this. You had better examine yourself by asking yourself the question, do you live in total obedience to the word of God? And when you disobey it, is there a sense of conviction and remorse that draws you to confess it to God? If that isn't there, there's a legitimate question about whether or not you're really a Christian. Because verse 21 says, that is, it is not the one who says, but the one who does, who will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, by this point, you're probably thinking, Bruce, you've been talking all this time. You haven't gotten to the text yet. Believe me, I know. But this stuff is important to know. So bear with me because I'm almost done with my introduction. Then we'll get to the text. But before we do, let me deal with one more issue. And that is, how does a deceived person know he's deceived? How can we spot such a person? Well, let me give you some keys and I want you to think these through. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who is marked by these keys is truly deceived, but these are good indicators that someone might be deceived. First, if you want to spot someone who's deceived, look for someone who's seeking feelings, blessings, experiences, healings, angels, and miracles. Why? Because chances are they're more interested in the byproducts of faith than they are interested in the faith itself. They're more interested in what they can get than the glory God can get. They're more interested in themselves than in the exaltation of Christ. Second, if you're looking for someone to see if someone might be deceived, look for people who are more committed to the denomination, the church, the organization, than they are to the Word of God. Their kind of Christianity may be purely social. They will say, oh, I'm a Baptist and I've been one my whole life. Or I'm a Presbyterian or I'm a Lutheran. 
They're more committed to the organization than they are to the Lord and his word. Marcia's stepmother was that way about the Lutheran church. She was a hardcore Lutheran, and based on that, she thought she was a believer. And we didn't see any evidence of genuine faith in her until the last few years of her life when a new pastor finally came to her church who truly taught the gospel, and it seems like it finally clicked with her. Third, look for people who are involved in theology as an academic interest. You'll find them all over the colleges and seminaries of our land. People who study theology and they write books on theology who are absolutely devoid of the righteousness of Christ. Theology for them is an intellectual activity. I remember when I went to Dallas Theological Seminary, my hermeneutics professor, Dr. Mark Bailey, later became the president of the seminary, once said in class, we're a great seminary. We've got 20 some odd thousand graduates and we have 24 of them in prison for life. And his point was they were self-deceived. They were there to study theology. It was an academic pursuit for them, but their heart was they weren't believers. But those folks aren't just in the colleges and seminaries. You'll also find them in churches. Many years ago, we had a man here in church who loved to study all the intricacies of the Bible text, was very interested in the academic exercises that are common in the theological discussions that you encounter in seminary. So I decided that I would invite him to join me in a one-on-one -on -one discipleship relationship. And he immediately started making excuses uh, why he was too busy at that point in time. Uh, every time I approached him, there was always a new excuse. Finally, his job transferred him out of our area, and he and his family moved away. And the next thing that happened was he became involved in an extramarital affair at his work, ended up leaving his wife and children, and eventually apostatized from the faith. And he never was a true believer at all. He loved to debate and argue about theological issues, but he was actually a reprobate. Fourth, Look for people who are always who seem to always be stuck on one overemphasized point of theology. This is the person who bangs the proverbial drum for his own little area, some crazy quirk. And it's usually is not some great divine insight. They'd like you to think that they're so close to God they have a great divine insight that no one else around them has. The fact of the matter is they're seeking a platform for the feeding of their own ego. Watch for people with a lack of balance. We had a man in church many years ago who was on a kick about demons. He saw one behind every single problem. There was a demon for this sinful issue, and a demon for that sinful issue, and when we tried to explain to him that it, it wasn't always a demon causing those things, that our fallen sinful flesh is responsible for most of the sin in our lives, he couldn't handle that, and he wandered off into a life of what you might call spiritual nothingness. So now let's begin looking at these people that Jesus says are self-deceived. And in this passage, he describes two categories. First, there are those who are characterized by empty words in verses 21 to 23. Second, there are those who have empty hearts in verses 24 to 27. The first group makes mere verbal professions of faith and deeds in, for God. The second group has mere intellectual knowledge of the gospel they hear. The first group says but does not do. The second group hears but does not do. So that's the way the passage lays out. Before we dive into it, finally, are there any questions or comments before we move along? Yes. Can I ask you something, Bruce? Um, people who live together. Mm -hmm. Let's say they live together, they share the bed, but there's no sex involved. Let's say they're elderly or something, and they do it for other reasons. What about? I mean, Doesn't make it right. right. 
curious. Yeah. Okay. You know, Scripture says avoid the appearance of evil. Okay. One other thing about the ten virgins, real quick. I know you said that the um, the lamps represented something. Does the oil represent something different? Salvation. Salvation. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Well, yes. I just wanted to say that the people who are deceived, it's so hard to convince to be able to even say. They're the hardest they, ones. You're it's and so hard. it. That, that's and why. That is that alone. Is one of the reasons why I'm an unrepentant Calvinist, <laughs> because it uh, it proves that salvation has to be the work of the Lord, because you will never convince the person. You can have the finest gospel presentation that's ever been given, and unless the Spirit of God is working in their heart, they will not hear and listen. It takes the Spirit of God to can change the heart of man. And uh, uh, so, and you can have the lousiest presentation of the gospel, stumbling and stuttering and falling all over yourself. And if the Holy Spirit's working in their life, they will come running to Christ. It's the matter of the Holy Spirit working. Yes? So in Philippians 2, where it says that work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So does that mean that some of these people that do uh, accept Christ in, say, a, a more of a, a seeker church, and they start their walk with the Lord, but eventually they're getting into the scriptures, the Holy Spirit definitely can save someone that way. Oh, yeah. But you're saying it's not... It's all the evidence, the other evidence. It's the evidence, the evidence from Scripture. He tells us, here's the evidence. What will happen is what's happened over and over and over. I can't count on both hands and both feet with fingers and toes the number of people here at Lakeside who came out of exactly the kind of background you're describing. Came out of a, a charismatic background, word of faith background, seeker-sensitive church background, and the latest thing coming out of the, the woke church background. And, and they're, they, as the Spirit works in their heart and lives, they're realizing, you know, where I'm at is not where I ought to be. This church is not teaching the truth. I need to find a church that teaches God's Word faithfully. And they end up through God's providence at Lakeside or some other good sound church. But they leave. So, does that answer your question? Okay. All right, let's read again. We're talking about empty words here. Verses, seven, chapter, verses 21 to 23. Obviously, you can look at the clock and the time and know we're not going to get anywhere near finished with this. <laughs> not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Now notice that in both verses 21 and 22, they say, Lord, Lord. We saw that the foolish virgins in Matthew 25 said the same thing. That is an interesting phrase. The word is kurios. Kurios. And a Jew might use that term as a title of respect and honor for any political, military, or religious figure, including teachers. Uh, a slave would use that term to refer to his master. The, the Romans used it to refer to the emperor, Caesar. It was the, it's the word which the Septuagint used to translate God's personal name, Yahweh, in the Greek Old Testament, because they considered the name too holy to utter. Uh, so it was a word used to refer to God himself. And since this was the word the, the new Christians of the first century saw used in the Old Testament scriptures for God, it became the Christian's common means of referring to Jesus, as we will see throughout the New Testament epistles. And so this double use of Lord, Lord is a way for these people at the last judgment to acknowledge 
to Jesus that he is both master and Yahweh. They're saying, we know you're God. We know you're Yahweh. We acknowledge all that your deity involves. You are the master. You are God. We acknowledge that you are true and righteous and just and holy. We submit to your authority. So they're using this doubling of kurios to demonstrate to him that they are submissive and devoted and dedicated to him. They use the right term to show that they have the right attitude, the right fervency, the right commitment. These people claim to be followers of the God of Israel, the creator and Lord of all the earth. Not only that, but they acknowledge Jesus himself to be divine because he says, they will say to me, that is to Jesus, on that day, Lord, Lord. And the fact that they have claimed so many outstanding works in his name tells us that they are especially fervent religious workers. They, and they are specifically those who claim to be Christians. The members of the other world religions don't claim to do their work in Jesus' name. So these people are those who have claimed to love and serve Jesus. Now, this term, on that day, in verse 22, is a reference to the day of the Lord, uh, a term used throughout Scripture to refer to the, to the period of divine judgment, which begins with the rapture of the church. Although there are over a thousand years of earthly history yet to go, uh, that entire period is referred to as the day of the Lord and encompasses both the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. There are various judgments that take place after the end of the current age, starting right after the rapture of the church. There will be the Bema seat judgment for believers. It's not a judgment to determine if they are going to be allowed to enter heaven or not. Rather, the Bema seat judgment is a time of presenting believers with their rewards and crowns. Uh, while that's going on in heaven, the earth will be Go, undergoing God's judgment during the tribulation. And this will conclude with the return of Christ and the establish, establishment of his millennial kingdom. But after the millennial kingdom, there will be one final rebellion against God, at, which will be led by Satan, and that will be crushed. Satan and his minions will be condemned to hell. And then Jesus will take his seat upon the great white throne for the final judgment that is discussed in Revelation 20. I believe that that judgment is the one of which he speaks when he says, in that day. Okay? Now then, think about this. At the time of the great white throne judgment, many professing believers will have already spent centuries in hell awaiting their final judgment. And that seems to add to their sense of fervency as they find themselves standing before Jesus to be judged at the, for the final condemnation. After all, they were active and diligent in their religious work and activities, and yet now they've been in hell. They've come out for the final judgment of condemnation that will finalize their eternal torment. And so they are desperate <clears throat> as they plead their case to Jesus, saying, Lord, Lord, and reciting all the things that they did in his name. In fact, verse 22 records that they will repeatedly attempt to sway the Almighty Judge's final determination by saying that they did all these things in your name, in your name, in your name. They will say, Lord, we did all of this for you. We preached for you. We cast out demons for you. We did miracles for you. That's an amazing claim. <clears throat> they were respectful. They're orthodox. They're fervent. They're they're zealous. That sounds so good. And we might think these guys have got to be Christians. After all, look at everything they did and they say they did all for Jesus in his name. But verse 21 says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Why not? Because not everyone who says actually did the will of the Father who was in heaven. In Luke 6, 46, Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? So it is not the one who simply claims the Lord, but the one who does the Father's will who will enter heaven. The issue is obedience to the word of God. 
In John 8, 31, we're told that Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. So salvation and obedience to the will of God are inseparable. <laughs> Writer of Hebrews makes that clear, Hebrews 5, 9. He who became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. And so then Jesus says, and then I will declare to them. Stop there for a moment. That word declare is the same word that's often translated confess. In fact, it's translated that way in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. So the word means to acknowledge, to confess. But the meaning goes beyond that. It means to declare plainly, to profess publicly, to declare, to assert. It's used of a legal transaction in which one party would promise to do something with an oath. It's a strong word of affirmation, acknowledgement, and assertion. As an aside, that sort of puts a twist on what it means to confess our sins, doesn't it? We shouldn't just pray and say, Lord, I confess my sins with an attitude that just sort of breezes over them. Confession is to be a strong acknowledgement of the specifics of our sin to the Lord. We're to declare plainly our sinfulness to the Lord, not making any excuses or minimizing it in any way. Well, I'm going to have to stop. I'm sorry, but I have to. Any more comments or questions before we uh, <laughs> shut it down here? Yes? I'm confused. Okay. You said these people <clears throat> that are standing before um, the white throne judgment have been in hell for, for years. Is that the shield where they've been? Shield is a word which means death. Uh, it, it came to mean the punishment and torment, uh, shield, but. Uh, it, it means it, it literally means death, um, and and since uh, they they are going to hell, and they're held there until the final judgment, where they are again finally condemned permanently there. No, the Catholic. Well, they they will use that, but they really base their doctrine of purgatory on some of their apocryphal books that they include in the Bible. Yes. Yes, the lake of fire. Okay, which was prepared for who? The devil and his angels. So, all right, our time is up. Terry, would you close us? Our Father God, we just praise you.